name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. There's two, two things that I recognize and I don't think I said. One of them was that some of you are not convinced at this point that human life in the womb is worthy to be protected because of the same thing Willie says, that they're not a person yet. They, they can't think. They don't have sentience. And so up to 22 weeks, etc. And so I recognize that some of you may be there and all. And uh, so, but I just, I would just still encourage you to uh, to look into this, it's become so politicized, if, if I can, let me just talk about this for a couple more seconds. You know, it, there was a time in our, in our country when Democrats and Republicans were either pro-life or pro, pro-choice. They were, they were one of those two things, right? And you had them on both sides of the aisle. Now it's become so politicized now that one, one party has one thing and one party has the other. That is, that is such a shame because I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a political issue. It should be a moral issue, right? So there really should be people on both sides of the political aisle that would, would differ on this. You know, maybe there are, but at least not, not openly in politics. And the other thing I wanted to say is that some of you ladies have had abortions, and I recognize that. And, uh, you know, what, what can I say that you don't already know? And that is that that's wrong. But also for all of us, all of us are sinful. All of us fall short of the glory of God. That's why we all need Jesus. So I'm grateful for the forgiveness and cleansing that there is in the Lord Jesus for me. For me, first and foremost. And for all of us here this morning with regard to that. One more thing before I actually turn to the text uh, that's before us, and, and that is that I, I, I've debated on whether to say this or not. I was not planning on saying this, but in our prayer time at 8 o'clock, the first thing out of somebody's mouth when we read the text for today was, you preached on this not too long ago. <laughs> and then someone says, yeah, I remember that. So that means that as I start to preach this morning, many of you are going to say, I remember this text. It wasn't so long ago, and it wasn't so long ago, okay? So we're going to preach on the same text. So I don't want you sitting there in your mind saying, we just heard this, we just heard this, and not pay attention to what I'm saying. So I'm owning it, guys. I'm preaching on the same text that I preached actually six months ago, six months ago today. So, um, all right, that's behind us, all right? So here we go. I'm going to start this morning uh, differently than I started back then. So I'm going to start differently, and I'm going to start with a test of your memory and your brain power. So here it goes. Why don't cannibals eat comedians? They taste funny, right? Okay. <laughs> so if a cannibal saw Miss Virginia in her wheelchair, what would she call her? Meals on wheels. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful, Virginia. What do you call a night in a cannibal village? Canned food. And one more. <laughs> and one more. This has got to be a modern one, okay? What is a cannibal's favorite restaurant? Five guys. Yeah, I heard it in the back. Five guys. Now, Michael told me not to do that, and he's probably right. But I, I, re, I, remember, I remember as a young kid that cannibal jokes were standard fare. Anybody my age probably remembers that. Kids today are much more sophisticated. I'll bet you young people never even heard those cannibal jokes before, right? But, uh, but in the days of the early church, cannibalism was no joking matter. In fact, it was one of the things that we as followers of Jesus were accused of. 
we were accused of being cannibals. And so prolific and so uh, libelous were those charges that some of our earliest church fathers who wrote felt the necessity to write to defend us against such charges of cannibalism. For instance, Justin Martyr in 150 AD wrote a treatise to defend us and to say we are not those who eat the flesh of other people. Tertullian, two decades later in North Africa, felt the need to do the same thing. In our text this morning, it's that passage where Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. And this is a very radical statement. And not only is it a radical statement, but it it impacted the listeners the very day that Jesus made it. And obviously, it, it tagged us with this claim of cannibalism that needed to be refuted over the years to come. Now let's remind ourselves of the context of the passage this morning. By the way, if you happen to be our guest, and we have some this morning, uh, we are studying through the Gospel of John, and we're at chapter 6 this morning. In fact, we're going to finish chapter 6. If we had just a few verses last week, we have a lot of verses to cover this week in our our text before us. But in our context, in John chapter 6, we begin with Jesus trying to get away on retreat and not being able to because the crowds that followed him were great and he felt they were more of a priority over his retreating and so he, he sits down and teaches them. The crowd was said to have been 5,000 men. Some estimate that to mean that there may have been as many as 15,000 people who were there listening to him. We don't know how many for sure, but Jesus feeds them with two fish and five loaves, a miracle. When he's finished feeding them, they pick up 12 baskets full of food, one for each of the disciples, evidently collecting the food. That evening, Jesus sends his disciples on on across the Sea of Galilee over to uh, Capernaum. He stays behind, dismisses the the crowd, goes up on a mountain to pray, comes walking to them in the wee hours of the morning. When he arrives there, you know, he calms the sea and they arrive in Capernaum. And uh, when they arrive in Capernaum, you know, what what they did that morning, I, I don't know exactly, but at some point Jesus ends up in the synagogue in Capernaum and he's teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now we're going to start our study this morning with verse 22. We're going to go all the way to the end of the end of the chapter. So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do just so you'll know. I am simply this morning going to work my way through the text. I'm going to read a text and I'm going to comment on it. I'm going to read a text and I'm going to comment on it. And hopefully when we finish today, we'll understand John chapter 6 and this discourse that Jesus delivered on this particular day. Everybody know what we're going to do? Everybody following? All right, so we're going to pick up with verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, on the sea, that there was no, excuse me, let me start again. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they had ate the bread again. And after the Lord had given thanks, after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, we don't know this because of the verse, but we'll know at the end of the chapter. They find him in the, in the synagogue there in Capernaum. 
So here's what went down. The next morning, they went back to the place looking for Jesus because they knew he didn't get into the one boat that they had seen there. And so they went back to find them. Now, I don't, I don't imagine that there's all 5,000 people going back and looking for them, but there's a bunch of people that go back looking for him. And uh, they cannot find him. A bunch of boats have come in. You remember there was a storm the night before. So a bunch of boats have come to harbor near the, near the shore so to protect themselves. Those boats are there. Those people who have come, at least a lot of them, get in those boats and they go to Capernaum to try to find Jesus. When they get over there, they find him. Verse 25, they ask, Rabbi, when did you get up here? And really their question isn't, when did you get here? Their, their real question is, Rabbi, how did you get here? When did you get here? How did you get here? Did you come by boat? Did you walk? You know, how, how did you get here? That's really what they're asking Verse 26, Jesus replies and answers and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Now Jesus tells them, listen, the reason you're here this morning, the reason you've come across the Sea of Galilee to find me, is not because you saw the miracle and understand who I am. It is not because you have faith in me. It is because you are seeking another meal. You are seeking more food from me. You are seeking what you can get out of me. In essence, he's telling them, you didn't come for the right reason. You're not coming because I'm Messiah and you want to follow Messiah. You're coming because you want another free meal. Now, I, I want to stop and ask a question here of all of us this morning. And the question is simply this. And so, Joey, it's a question for you. And Gene, it's a question for you. It's a question for all of us. Why do you seek the Lord? Seriously. Have you ever thought about it? Why do you seek the Lord? I mean, is it because of what you're going to get from Him? Or is it because of who He is? Now, let's be honest, everybody. I mean, in part, it's because of what He will do for us, right? That's why we seek the Lord in part. Jesus Jesus promised us, us eternal life. He promised us, in fact, this whole, this whole passage is really going to be about eternal life. So he promises us. So there's a sense in which we seek him for that. But, but what the Lord really wants is for you to seek him for who he is, not for what he's going to do for you. He wants you to seek him because he's God. He's your creator. He loves you. He wants you to seek him because you love him. That's the reason why God wants you to seek him. Hebrews 11.6 has become such a great verse for me, such an important verse for me. But in, in that verse, it says, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to Him must believe that He is, that He is God. And that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Not a rewarder of those who seek Him for, you know, for a meal or for a mink coat, or for a motorcycle, or whatever it is that you might seek the Lord for in this life. It, it is that we, we, we understand that He is, and that we seek Him for who He is, because He's God, because He's my Creator, because He's the one who loves me. Listen, Jesus refuses, He refused yesterday, He's refusing this day to, to be their meal ticket. He is refusing to be the Burger King. He's refusing to be the, the, the salad savior. He, he's refusing to be someone who's just going to dole out food and dole out things for us because we come to him. That's not why we come to him. That's not why he wants us to come to him. Verse 27. 
Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father, God, has set His seal. Now let me say something that should be obvious to all of us. Jesus is not advocating laziness. Jesus is not saying don't work. Don't work for your food and for your living. That is not what he's saying at all. He's saying do not work merely for food. Don't make that the focus of your life. Now listen, we do not understand this. We don't understand this because we live in a different day, a different culture. It's not the same for us. You know where your next meal is coming from. Not a single one of you in this room have any concern about where, where, where you're going to eat tomorrow. Not a single one of you in this room. You know where your meal is going to come from. But I'm telling you, there are people around the world this very day who have no idea where their meal is coming from tomorrow. And I don't mean that that's just for one day. I mean, they don't know because it's day after day after day. I mean, they're just, where am I going to eat tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And they are scrounging to find enough food to survive on. And listen, some of those happen to be our brothers and sisters, by the way. Out of sight, item, out of mind, though. We don't know, how, how can I care for my brother and sister who is in that kind of predicament? You know, we don't know how to do it, so we just, you know, we don't, know, we don't deal with it. I, I think somehow we, we should, but that's, a, that's another issue. Jesus is not saying don't work. He's saying don't work for food that doesn't in the end satisfy unto eternal life. Work for the food that is going to have an eternal effect that's going to have eternal ramifications in your life. That's what you need to work for. Verse 28. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? It seems like at some level, doesn't it, that they're following him? I mean, I mean as we go along in this, you're going to see they don't follow him at all. They, they do not follow his metaphors. They're not understanding what he's saying. But at least at this point, here early on, it seems they get it because they ask the question, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus continues. He says in verse 29, He answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now Jesus' answer is clear. It's precise. It's even concise. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in me, that you believe in, in, the, in him who has sent me. You believe in God. So here's, here's, here's one thing I want you to understand. The work of God has always been faith. The work of God has always been, that, that is what God has always looked for. That is the work of God, that we faith him. That we put our faith, our trust, our confidence in Him. That has always, always, always been the work of God. It's not the other things that we do. Now, are those works of God? Yes, they are. But the work of God is faith. It's nothing but faith. It's always been faith. Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't credited to him because he left his home and walked off and then followed the Lord to the land of Canaan and did everything that the Lord... He didn't do it well, but he did the things that he did. That's not what credited righteousness to him. What credited righteousness to him is that he believed the Lord. Habakkuk the prophet said, the, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, you see, faith has always been the bedrock of the work of God. It's always been what the work of God is. Righteousness is given to us by our faith. Jesus accomplished righteousness by his death. Now, I really want you to understand this. Sin separates us from God. Sin, the, the penalty of sin, of sin is death, right? 
Okay? So that's where all of us are heading. We're heading to death. All of us will die. Jesus' death accomplished for us righteousness, gives us righteousness, so that that death will not be permanent. You see, he, he did it. His work on the cross accomplishes righteousness. Not my own works, not my own efforts, not anything I do. And, and, and the work of God is that I trust in Him. And it's always been so from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. And if there's any way you could understand this, if there's any way you can wrap your mind around this, you'll understand what the Christian faith says because it's different than every of the other world's religions. We, we claim, the Bible teaches, the Bible teaches that God gives you righteousness that you don't deserve because you're willing to put your trust in Him and that alone, not what you do. Verse 28. I just read that. Verse 29. This is the word God has sent to faith. I find the next question hard to comprehend. It's verse 30. So they said to Him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may, be, we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I find this question incomprehensible. How could these people who had just been on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and watch Jesus feed 5,000 men more. How could they turn around at that moment and say, okay, give us a sign that you really know what you're talking about? How, how could they even do that? And then they go on to say, and here's the sign that we want. That, that, that we, remember Moses? Remember how he gave them manna and they didn't have to go seeking for food? And the implication is, here's the sign we want to see. You give us manna from heaven. You give us that bread from heaven so that we, don't, we can collect it every morning and we don't have to worry about our next meal. You give us that bread. Hint, hint, Moses did. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. So Jesus corrects them and he says, Moses didn't give you the bread. God gave you the bread. And it is God who is giving you this bread now. This bread that leads to eternal life. This bread that gives life to the world. And their cry is, now here's, again, the metaphors, they're missing the metaphors. They're not seeing them. And they say, Lord, give us this bread. They want, they want this manna that Jesus is talking about. They're not tracking with him. They say, give us this bread. Life is hard. We need it. And in verse 35, now very clearly, very clearly, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I will come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him. For I have come down out of heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now clearly Jesus asserts, what is all so clear to all of us today, looking back. But he asserts, I am the bread of life. 
There's no manna going to fall from heaven. There's no little white flecks going to fall that you can pick up and form into bread and eat every day. That's not what I'm talking about. I am the bread of heaven. And if you come to me, if you, he hasn't gotten this part. He doesn't talk about eating him yet. He says, but if you eat this bread myself, you won't hunger anymore. And he even expands his metaphor. Do you see that? He expands his metaphor. He's been talking about eating bread. And he says, and if, you, if you take of me, you'll never be thirsty anymore either. You'll never thirst. Doesn't it remind you of John chapter 4? John chapter 4 is the story of the Samaritan woman. You remember her? She's sitting by the well. Jesus says, give me some water. And uh, she says, why? Why do you ask me? And he said, hey, if you had known who I was, you'd ask. I'd have given you water. And there'd, been water, there'd be springs of water springing up in your heart. And you'd have never thirst again. And she was like, oh, give me some of that water. Right? She's, she's the same way. She's, she's thinking with this wooden literalism. That they, evidently, people didn't get metaphors back then. I don't know. But they didn't get this one. Jesus is the bread. In verse 36, he says, you've seen me, but you do not have faith. You don't believe in me. In verse 37, he says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and I will cast none away. Who is the Father giving to the Son? Can I tell you that I I believe that the Father has given to the Son everyone who has put his faith in the Father or in the Son. He gives them to the Lord Jesus. So he's given to Jesus Abraham and Moses and King David and anyone else who has followed Jehovah. Anyone else who's put his faith in Jehovah, God is giving them to the Lord Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll not cast any of them away. Everyone who has believed and is believing in in the God of Israel in Yahweh, in, in, uh, in Jehovah, however you want to pronounce his name, he's giving them to him. In verse 39 and 40, Jesus says that he'll lose none of them. He'll lose none of them, but he'll give them eternal life. In fact, here's his words. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In verse 38, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And that that statement hits such a raw nerve in their heart. Look at verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? It seems almost in a moment the tide begins to change now and they begin to grumble against him. And here's what they're grumbling. We know this guy. Hey, he grew up in Nazareth. Remember, remember, he's in Capernaum, just a few miles from Cana, just a few miles from Nazareth. I mean, this is the general area where where Jesus grew up. They knew Joseph. They knew Mary. They even said that. We know his parents. How can this guy say that he came from heaven? But Jesus doesn't let up. Listen, listen. In this whole passage, Jesus is never going to let up. I mean, he's just going to. It's like if you've got a wound, you know, he's sticking his finger in it. And then they're like, you know, oh, this hurts. He's going to stick it in further. And he's going to wiggle it around. I mean, he is going to make this really hard. 
Verse 43, Jesus answered and said to them, do not, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not, any, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who has, is from God, that's me, i.e. me. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now these verses here, I, I, I need to comment on them because they have two vastly distinct understandings, especially verse 44 that says, No one can come to me unless the Father uh, who sent me draws him. Now one understanding of that verse, and I'm not sure what percentage of the body of Christ holds to these two uh, differing understandings of these verses, but, but one understanding is that it means this. No person from anywhere in the world, from any time in history, can ever respond to the gospel unless God chooses to enable them to believe by selecting them. He chooses only a predetermined group, and those he doesn't choose will not come and cannot come. So in this understanding of that verse, what Jesus is saying, them do not grumble. You have not been selected by God, and that's why you cannot come. You can't help it, and you will not believe in me. That's one way. Another way that people understand this verse is, is like this. At the time that Jesus spoke this, God was only drawing the Jews who had put their faith in him already, or whose hearts were tender towards the Lord. Those Jews who had rejected God, those Jews who had become hardened in their hearts in unbelief, God had rejected them. God was hardening their hearts. So in this understanding of the text, Jesus is saying, do not grumble. God is only drawing those of you whose hearts are soft towards him. He's only drawing those whose hearts are already filled with faith. From all the others, or for all the others, the Jews, that is, who wanted food, and that's all they wanted, God is hardening their hearts. God is hiding his identity from them. Much like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and I know some of you are going you're gonna to balk at this a little bit, and that's okay, but just as God hardened Pharaoh's heart in unbelief, do you remember that? So here's how the story goes with Pharaoh in Egypt many, many centuries before this. So the Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, hardens his heart, won't let Israel go. And then the Bible says, God hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart, and God hardened his heart. And God judged Egypt, and God judged Pharaoh because of his unbelief. And, and God did that to him. God had the right to judge him that way. And in the same way, God is now judging the Jews. And he is hardening their heart, those Jews who have been in unbelief, those Jews who have rejected God for centuries and, and years and years here, those in leadership now who are hardening their heart, God has rejected them and God is hardening their hearts in unbelief. He's doing it and it's a judgment from him. In theology, we call this the messianic secret. Why does Jesus always seem to hide his identity? Listen, here's some verses from Mark. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Mark 9, 9. Matthew 16. He warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That was Matthew 16, 20. But he gave them strict orders not to tell anybody who he was. Mark 3, 12. 
Mark 4, 11 and 12, 33 and 34, he says, The kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those who are outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may ever be seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable, but when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. But if you want it even clearer, here's Romans chapter 11. In verse 25, Paul says, For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all of Israel will be saved. Here's what Paul is saying. Here's what, here's what Mark and Matthew are intimating. Here's what the Scripture is teaching. It is teaching that at the time Jesus walked the earth... The Jewish people who had the covenants, who had so much from God, if they walked in unbelief, God sealed them in their unbelief, hardened their heart, and would not let them believe as a judgment, even as he judged Pharaoh in Egypt centuries before. Now, John chapter 12, verse 32, we're not there yet, but in John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus in another discourse says this. He says, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. In chapter 6, he says, don't grumble. You can come because you have hardened your heart and God is hardening you in your unbelief. But if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. In that same context of chapter 12, John goes on and says this, though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Thus to fulfill what Isaiah said in verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. In Romans chapter 9, the Jews listening to Paul say this says, well, that's not fair. God doesn't have a right to harden the heart of these Jewish people who have, have been hardened all along. And Paul says, oh yeah, he does. He has the right to have mercy on whom he'll have mercy. We know who he's going to have mercy on. He's going to have mercy on everyone who humbles their heart and in faith turns to him. But he also has the right to harden your heart. If I could diverge for just a second and say this, and I've said this before, but be careful. Be careful. You can harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart. And then at some point, God can say, that's enough. I'm going to harden your heart. And you'll be sealed in your unbelief as a judgment from God. What Jesus is talking about in John chapter 6 is God's intentional and judicial hardening of men and not drawing them to himself. You know, my brother Don's here this morning. You know, and I prayed for him a long time that he would not be hardened. And here God has just worked in his heart in a marvelous way. But you be careful, lest you harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart. And then God chooses to harden your heart. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Who comes to Jesus? According to Jesus. Who comes to Jesus? Not a rhetorical question. Who comes? What does the text say? 
those who've heard from the Father, those who put their faith in Jehovah, those Jews who were faithful to God, those Jews who walked in covenant faithfulness to God, he gave them all to Jesus. Every one of them believed in the Lord Jesus. Every one of them followed the Lord. Jesus said, everyone who already knows and listens to the Father, they come to me. Jesus is not saying, I do not believe. In my estimation, Jesus is not saying that God is just arbitrarily for no known reason to men, only drawing some people from this age and that age and from this place and that place. He then reiterates that he comes from God. If you believe in him, you will have eternal life. He continues in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that the one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Again, man, they don't get his metaphors. And his metaphor is going to get deeper and it's going to get harder. But he compares himself to the manna of the Old Testament. And I must comment on this because he says, you, they ate the manna in the Old Testament and they still died. But you eat, the, you eat me, you eat the flesh, you eat my flesh, you, you eat the bread of life and you will not die. But wait a minute, I've eaten the flesh of the Son of God. I've, I have eaten of the bread of life and yet I'm going to die. What does Jesus mean? How does, what does he mean by this? Okay, it's, re- it's real simple. Okay, here's what he means. He means they ate the, the, bread, the manna in the wilderness and it was just bread for our existence now. And you're going to die from that. The bread of life that Jesus is talking about now is, is bread that leads to eternal life. And so here's what the Bible says. The Bible clearly says that the wages of sin is death and all of us die because all of us are sinners. So everybody dies. Everybody dies. But then the Bible clearly says, and I know you hear me say this all the time, and, 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 I, and I apologize, but I don't. It has an awful lot to do with Shep's death because, because that's become so tangibly real for me. I, I don't know how to express it, but that's what I, I long for the day when I see him and Daddy and, and all the other ones who have gone on before us that love the Lord. But here's what the Bible clearly says. There's coming a day that God's going to raise every single individual back to life and restore their lives to them. Every single one of us. Hitler and Billy Graham and you name it, God's going to Bring them all back to life. And then the Bible says we stand before the great white throne of judgment. In the great white throne of judgment, two outcomes are possible. One is that you receive eternal life and immortality with God, and you're a part of his kingdom. And the other outcome is this. The other outcome is that you will be cast into the lake of fire, which the Bible says is the second death. So understand this. This is so important. Jesus died not to rescue you from this death. The wages of sin is death. You're going to die here. But he's going to raise you back to life, and you'll have an opportunity for immortality or what the Bible calls the second death. By the way, how do you get immortality? That's right. And how do you get in the Lamb's Book of Life? By believing in Jesus, by faith, right? Faith. It's always been by faith. How did Abraham get into the Lamb's Book of Life, everyone? Was it because he did the sacrificial system? No. It was because he believed God. Now, his belief in God led him to be faithful to the Lord. It led him to do the sacrificial system. But he got in the Lamb's Book of Life. He got there by his faith. But his faith, God takes our faith. And his faith that God is looking for, our humility to trust in him. 
And here's what he says. If you put your trust in him, then you will not die the second death. Now let's go back to Jesus for just a minute. I know you understand this, so forgive me if I'm just repeating something you know so well, but, but, here, but here's the deal. Did Jesus deserve this death here? Why not? Say it. He never sinned, right? They say when they poll evangelicals that, that I don't know, it's this huge number of us say that Jesus sinned. Listen, the Bible is so clear. Jesus never failed the Father. He never sinned. He didn't deserve death. Okay, all of us are sinners by nature. And, and, and so we, we deserve death. I mean, I mean, not we deserve death necessarily because infants and, and all that are born, I don't think they deserve death, but it's the, it's the human part of us, right? But Jesus is not a sinner. He never sinned, even in his adult life. And so therefore, Jesus did not deserve this death. So the death that Jesus died there is applied to me right here. And so I live when I eat the bread of life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, if you eat that bread, the manna, you will die again. But if you eat this bread over here, you will not die. You will not die in the great white judgment, great white throne judgment of God. Revelation 20, 14 says, that Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life, Richard, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And then in, in Revelation 21, verse 4, and here's what it says. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's those of us who have put our faith in Him. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And what is this bread? What is this bread? Jesus tells us for the first time. He says, This bread is my flesh. What did He mean by that? Verse 52. Well, actually, before I read that, what did he mean by that? He meant his life. He, when, when he says, the bread, of, the, bread the, 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 that I, the bread that I give is my life, my flesh, he's saying, I'm going to give my life. I'm going to die for you. Verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're wooden literalism. I mean, they, they're just, they, are, they just don't get it. But undeterred and unshaken from his desire to poke them, he continues on with more scandalous words. 50-53, he says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I am in, in him and I in him. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Now we have the advantage of looking back in hindsight on what Jesus meant in years of church history. We have that advantage. But on that day and that moment, they are taking him with a wooden literalism. And I'm telling you, can you? In fact, I find it hard to say those words even today that I have eaten the flesh of Jesus and I have drank his blood. I find it hard to say that. Something inside of me doesn't even want to say that, even though I know that's not what he means. Jesus was not advocating cannibalism. So what did he mean when he said, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Well, here are the clues. John 6, 27 and 29 say the same thing. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the coming to me, that's how we eat of the bread. We come to him. And he's talking about in faith. 
John 6, 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. To eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink His blood is to believe on Him, to believe His promise of eternal life, to believe everything that He said about Himself. To eat His flesh and drink His blood is to put your faith in Him and trust in Him alone. Now believe what? Here's what we believe. We believe that God sent Jesus from heaven, John chapter 1, and we believe that his death, the breaking of his body and the spilling of his blood, the, the pouring out of his life pays in full our, for our death so that the perfect righteousness of God can be given to me and God can raise me up in that righteousness. Believing is how we Believing is how we eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. Verse 57. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. The manna, they died physically. The bread of life gives you eternal life, though you'll still die. Verse 59. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? I mean, they were having a hard time listening to it. And, um, and not only were they having a hard time listening to it, in verse 66, we haven't got there yet, but in just a moment, it's going to say a lot of his disciples quit being his disciples because they, they couldn't stand this statement. They, they, they were still looking at it like he's talking about eating him in a literal sort of way. Here's a fundamental reality that I want you to understand, that to believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus, and there is no believing in Jesus without following Him. There is no faith without faithfulness. And so here are these people who believe in Him, but then they don't believe in Him, and they don't follow Him. Many stop following Him. Faith and faithfulness are the two, two sides of the same coin. And I don't understand that, but, and again, I'm not trying to say you have to be this faithful, you have to muster this much faithfulness, you have to do this in faith. I'm not saying any of that. I am saying, though, that faith always leads to faithfulness. It has to. It cannot do anything other than that. And that's what happens here, and that's what we see. Verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, and then again, he's poking his finger in there even harder. Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I've spoken to you, they're spirit and they are life. He says, does this bother you, what I'm saying? How, how much would it bother you to see me ascend back up into heaven where I came from? And he's actually, some of those men standing there would actually see that in another year or so. He said, if that makes you stumble, man, this would make you stumble all the more. He says, your, your acts of flesh, they don't, they, don't, they don't count for anything. Only that which the Spirit does counts. And the words that I've given you, they are from, his, they are from my Spirit. They're from the Holy Spirit. And they are life if you will listen. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. And who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him from the Father. And here John tells us that Jesus knew who would betray him. He's going to repeat that again in just another couple of verses. Judas, listen, this is something, Judas is being hardened by God. Judas is being hardened by God in judgment because of his unbelief. Think about this for a moment. Judas has been with Jesus. He's seen all these things, and, and yet he has not believed. And at some point, the Father hardens Judas. 
and will use Judas in the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. There's that verse. So Jesus turns to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon answered, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not myself choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a, is a devil or a slanderer? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I tell you, I find this commentary so sad and so sobering at the same moment. Many stop believing Jesus and stop following Jesus. And then he turns to the twelve and he says, are you guys going to leave too? And it's Peter that speaks up. And, and Peter, Peter says, Lord, there is no one else to go to. Who, who, who else? Who else has words of life like you do? And I can, can I say something here personally? That's exactly how I feel. That's exactly how I feel. If Jesus isn't Lord, if, if, if the biblical account of the resurrection of Jesus and the person of Jesus, if it's not true, there is nothing true. That's me. I mean, you might, you might gravitate to something else, but if Jesus isn't Lord, if Jesus isn't who the Bible claims he is, if the truth of the scripture isn't true, then I'm telling you, there is nowhere else to go. And I am an agnostic or an atheist if it isn't true. But I'm here to tell you this morning with all my heart, I believe it is true. Paul, Peter says, we have believed that you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And that's what I believe. That's what I believe. Can I ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Because that's the whole intention of chapter 6, is to ask you this morning, do you believe that? To eat the flesh of Jesus and to drink His blood is to believe in Him. It's to follow Him. It's to believe that Jesus came from God, from heaven, to die for us, for our sin, to give us eternal life so that we might live forever. Joni, what did you call it in, in prayer meeting this morning? We're asking people to believe what? We're asking people to believe purple, in ele purple elephants with pink polka dots, right? I get that, man. We're, we're asking people who don't believe to believe in purple elephants with pink polka dots. But you know what? It's true. Jesus is Lord because Jesus defeated death. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. And that's why I believe in Jesus as strange as some people might believe it to be. And I want to say to you this morning, Jesus wants to give all of us eternal life. Do you have eternal life? Have you eaten the flesh of Jesus and drank his blood? Hard to hear, isn't it? Have you eaten the flesh of Jesus and drank his blood? Because if you haven't, I invite you to do that this morning. To eat the flesh of Jesus and drink his blood. I won't say it again. Don't fall into the trap they fell into. I'm not talking about cannibalism. I'm talking about believing on the Lord Jesus. Giving your, your whole heart to Him. Following Him with all your being. Are you willing to put your faith in Jesus this morning? Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.